National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. And good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, October 11th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security challenges and opportunities. Uh, We're going to discuss the situation in the Middle East this morning. Uh, While we'll certainly certainly discuss the situation in Israel, we're going to go beyond the immediate conflict to cover wider, more strategic national security considerations as well. With us to discuss this topic is Professor Greg Marfleet. Greg Marfleet serves as the Dorothy H. and Edward C. Congdon Professor of Political Science in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Carleton College. Professor Marfleet completed his doctorate at Arizona State University in International Relations and Comparative Politics. His dissertation was entitled Taking Risks for War and Peace, Groups, Leaders, and Crisis Behavior, which is an appropriate foundation for the discussion we're going to have today. His work has appeared in Political Psychology, Foreign Policy Analysis, and the Journal of Political Science Education. His courses at Carleton College include International Relations and World Politics, Methods of Political Research, Complexity in Politics, and American Foreign Policy. And Professor Marfleet serves as the co-director of the Public Policy Program. Professor Greg Marfleet, welcome back to National Security This Week. It's great to be back. Uh, fun, always fun to have these conversations with you, John. Now, I'll, I'll admit to the audience, and I, I want to say to you, uh, thank you for, for doing this on, <laughs> on very, very short notice. Uh, we, we did have a, a guest scheduled many months ago. It was the uh, official spokesperson for the Royal Saudi uh, Embassy in Washington, D.C., but with everything that's happened since the weekend, uh, they have curtailed any uh, open discussions with the press. And thank you for filling in uh, on this topic at such short notice. Happy to have the opportunity, yeah. So we have a lot to talk about today. I want to drive right in. Uh, let's start with this. The, the designated terrorist group, uh, the U.S. designates uh, terrorist groups uh, around the world when they reach a certain threshold, uh, Hamas, uh, launched an assault into Israel uh, over the weekend from their base in Gaza. And for our listeners, Gaza and the West Bank are two places where uh, large numbers of Palestinians reside. And, and I'm going to just read something uh, from the U.S. State Department that's sort of an executive summary outlining what West Bank and Gaza are. And West Bank and Gaza Strip residents are subject to the jurisdiction of separate authorities with different implications for the fabric of life. Palestinians in the West Bank are subject to Jordanian and mandatory statutes in effect before 1967, military ordinance enacted by the Israeli military commander in the West Bank, and in the relevant areas, the Palestinian Authorities Law, the PA, mm-hmm. uh, FATA. Uh, Israelis living in the West Bank are subject to the Israeli laws and Israeli legislation and military ordinance enacted by the military commanders, whereas Palestinians living in the West Bank are subject primarily to Israeli military ordinances. Palestinian Authority exercises varying degrees of authority in the small portions of the West Bank where it has some measure of control. Although Palestinian Authority laws theoretically apply in the Gaza Strip, theoretically, yeah, theoretically, the Palestinian Authority does not exercise authority there, and Hamas continues to exercise de facto control over security and other uh, matters. The Palestinian Authority Basic Law, which serves as an interim constitution, establishes Islam as the official religion and states the principles of Sharia will be the main source of legislation but provides for freedom of belief, worship, and the performance of religious rights unless they violate public order or morality. So it's sort of an interesting uh, split here between West Bank and Gaza, two very different... uh, I guess, uh, ecosystems, really, for how the Palestinians live their lives. And so that will sort of uh, give us a foundation as we as we continue through our discussions today. So, Greg, from, from your learned perspective, <laughs> how would you frame this well-coordinated major attack by Hamas? Uh, why attack now, and what does Hamas, and, and perhaps their backers, hope to achieve with this offensive? Well, let me begin by saying, sort of uh, full disclosure to your listeners, I am not an expert on the Middle East. I don't, I don't, I don't know if anybody really is. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a deep subject, uh, yeah. and you know, it's impossible really to do uh, to study international politics 
uh, at the PhD level without getting some exposure to uh, to this Middle East context. So um, that said, uh, yeah, I could either, my, I would begin probably sound like an old school international relations scholar and say it all starts with von Clausewitz and that polit- war is the continuation of politics by other means, right? So let's start with that premise and then say what politics could we be talking about? And I think we can kind of start from the ground and work our way up to the geopolitical. Uh, starting at the ground level, the introduction you gave, I think, is the perfect framing for this, right? So um, the Palestinian Authority was created out of the failed Oslo Accords, uh, which essentially said we need to establish some sort of entity that represents the Palestinians uh, as, a, as a government. Uh, and the PLA was created, and it had elections. The last election for president, though, was in 2005. Mahmoud Abbas won it and has continued in the rule for like 18 years. Um, that eventually they uh, the, they lost a legislative election. The, the legislative election was like 2006, and Hamas won that. And then there was this big fracture between the two sides of the, the PLA, one, the Hamas side and, and the Mahmoud Abbas you side. You mean P- Palestinian Authority. The, yeah, Palestinian, oh, sorry, yeah, the Palestinian Authority, right, yeah, the, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, uh, and Abbas is still the head of the PLO, uh, technically, as, a, as an entity, although it's sort of been subsided into the, into the, um, the political entity that, of, the, of the Palestinian Authority. So the, the first way to think about this is through that lens of a rivalry between two political factions that are both vying to claim the mantle of the leader of uh, Palestinian resistance to Israeli uh, occupation. And in that regard, you can see this act as a classic example of what terrorist scholars call outbidding, right? So there's been a series of, and this is long ongoing, but a series of kind of uprisings, maybe actions in the West Bank in the last little while uh, in reaction to settler activity. There's the Humara events, which involve the uh, the death of two young Israeli boys who were killed by a Palestinian gunman, and this resulted in a reprisal attack by uh, settlers in that region, and they burned the town, and uh, so there, and the IDF was there but didn't intercede, and so there's been a whole lot of things happening in the West Bank, and, uh, and uh, the IDF has been directly heavily focused on the West Bank as a result of some of this settler-related activity. And this all speaks to questions in Israeli politics we can talk about as well. Um, but it's certainly the case that Hamas wants to be the the premier entity. And so by launching this kind of attack, bigger than anything that's ever been accomplished anywhere else against the Israelis, um, is a way of saying like we're we're the we're the real resistors, you know we're the we're the real vanguard of resistance, and we're going to take action in a way that the Palestinian Authority is not able to do anything in the West Bank. They're the they've been you know the argument back in uh, during the Oslo Accords was that the the Palestinian Authority was basically a capitulation in writing anyway, and so for the real resistors of uh, Israeli occupation, that was a capitulation that made Oslo unacceptable. And so uh, the Hamas sees themselves as a continuation of that, saying, yeah, the, we're not going to go along with the, the, the PA, which is basically a tool of the Israelis to, make, to keep us under, under yoke. We're going we're gonna to fight it. So I think w- the first way to think about this as a, is as a signal of uh, intensity, of, uh, of uh, commitment, on the part of Hamas to, 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 to keep the fight against the Israelis going. I think that's the first level, that sort of outbidding kind of thing. Um, the second level, I think, is to think that, that undoubtedly Hamas expected this to be uh, responded to. Right? Oh, there's, oh, no, yeah. there's, no way, <laughs> yeah. there's no way that they, they thought the Israelis would not respond. Right. Right? And they were actually counting on that response. Right? Mm-hmm. The second sort of element of, of the sort of terrorism theory is you uh, launch an attack and you provoke a response that may be out of proportion with the original attack in such a way that it radicalizes the population even more as they come under, as civilian deaths occur as a consequence of this overreaction. So in some ways, this is also a bid uh, for, you know, broader uh, support within the Palestinian community. We want to radicalize more people. We want to get more people uh, on our side and engaged in these kinds of activities. So there's there's signaling both within factions of the Palestinian uh, political uh, spectrum and uh, signals of sort of gaining support through these actions and the re- and responses to the reprisals. That's sort of like step one, right? Yep. So, yep. And then I think you can kind of move up and say, well, how does this play into just the broader politics of Israel to right. some extent? And um, 
that's where things get interesting. You know, you, you may or may not be familiar with, you know, Netanyahu's. You've, you've probably seen this guy on TV, right? You know, and he came and, and he's visited the United States and, and snubbed Biden and a whole bunch of other things like this at various times. But the, um, the Israeli government went through a series of attempts to form a government but failed. Right? Recall that not long ago where they went through multiple attempts to create a government then had to have more elections and then tried to form a government again and couldn't. The net result of that is that Netanyahu has uh, been forced to form a coalition with some very extreme right-wing Zionist religious parties in Israel yeah. that don't really represent most of Israeli public opinion. Uh, and, and as a result, you've seen a series of... Uh, of actions by the Israeli government. Um, this most recent controversy involved the Supreme Court. Um, <clears throat> the court has had a f- uh, has a lot of autonomy from the Israeli government in terms of how they appoint justices and things like that. This has irked uh, particularly the right, far right in Israeli politics because the court has tended to adopt a, a more kind of um, uh, civil rights orientation and protection of minorities, even in the face of laws passed by the Knesset that might be seen as uh, kind of contravening that. There's been a series of examples uh, of this kind of thing within the Palestinian, that, that have subjugated the Palestinian community. So there's, there's to, to be clear, there there are Palestinians, they call them, sometimes call them Arab Israelis, but they're not Arabs. They're Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, yeah. who live in Israel. Um, and they're um, about 20% of the population. So it's not a s- tiny minority. It's a sizable minority. Uh, and s- since the 2000s, there's been a series of laws that have really restricted the civil rights of these people. Um, the most recent one passed in 2022 uh, is about uh, marrying outside. Uh, so if, if a, an Israeli Palestinian, and a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, marries a Palestinian from outside, either the West Bank or Gaza, uh, they've denied the, 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 the uh, legality of that union. Right, exactly. The, the spouses can't be reunited. They've already had a series of laws that have prevented family reunification in Israel. So families cannot sponsor Palestinians who live in the West Bank or Gaza or Jordan, because there's a sizable number of them still in that country as well, can't bring them back into the country. So these have been seen that the court, interestingly, the, the Israeli Supreme Court has at various times ruled these laws uh, unconstitutional. They don't have a written constitution in that regard. They have something called the basic law, but uh, has basically said these laws contravene the basic law. They're inhumane. Uh, there was a 6-5 decision one way and then a 6-5 decision the other way. And But it's been sort of on the on the edge on some of these things. And I think if if the factions on the right in Israeli politics would have their way, they would uh, they see the court as an impediment to the, some of this, this stuff. And they're concerned about, you know, Israeli demographics in Israel and birth rates and a bunch of things like that, and maintaining the Jewishness of the state. So there's been a series of kind of increasing crackdowns on Palestinian populations in the West Bank. Yeah. Uh, and even... Um, um, since, some, since this new government, since was this formed. new government was formed, yeah, and so all these things are signaling sort of this new tension. Now, you know, I, I say that I don't want to blame you know you don't want to blame the victim. Right. Certainly, nothing the Israeli government has done justifies the actions of Hamas in right. this case. Right? That's exactly Absolutely. right. That's, that's not not the matter, but it does signal that the, the tensions have been rising, and that I think from the perspective of the, of the Palestinians, we've got a more and more extreme less and less secular, more and more religious. Some of these these right-wing political groups in Israel are calling for essentially the Jewish equivalent of Sharia law. They want to replace the secular state with a with a Torah-driven, you know, religious rab- rab- uh, rabbinical, you know, uh, leadership. So if that's the case, this sort of polarization, the, the, the potential for any kind of peace or recognition or whatever it is that uh, suggests that, you know, the, the Palestinians are never going to have any luck if, if Israeli politics is moving further and further and down that path. So I think those are the first two levels of politics we can talk about. Yeah. And then the, the last one, am I going on too long? No, 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 this is great. I think the last one is the geopolitical, yeah. right? And yeah. I, that's the one that everybody points at right away as the, you know, thinking about this attack, right? Th- this was obviously planned for a long time. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is not, hey, it's, this happened yesterday, and so now we're going to attack. This has been in the works for ages. 
uh, we can talk a little bit about that as a as a as an interesting dimension because the essentially the Gaza has been blockaded for almost twenty years and yet they've still managed to get rockets and munitions and stuff like that into the space. This has obviously been planned for a long time, maybe with outside help. Probably we can talk about that too, <laughs> right? And probably with outside help. And so um, the why right now question is is like why did they trigger this act? I think it has to do with the emerging potential peace agreements between the Saudis and the Israelis. Yeah, and, which, I, and I do want to ask you about that in yeah, way more detail yeah. uh, shortly. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back to the you know potential help for Hamas. Right. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the the question is Iran. You know, what's Iran's role in this? Uh, Iran, uh, although the the Palestinians are are m- mostly Sunni Arabs, right? Right. Um, Iran has been a backer of Hamas for a long time uh, and obviously um, has potentially supplied uh, munitions to the to the region. I think they've probably supplied intelligence to the region. They've probably helped coordinate to some degree. There was an admission uh, from a person in the uh, Iranian Republican Guard that they had had a role in this. This was denied by the Ayatollah who said, no, we don't have any role in this, but that, of course that's obfuscation, yeah. right, yeah. Uh, for, for, for political purposes. But, yeah, the, the, the level of coordination of this the, being so much higher than we have seen previously suggests that there must have been some sort of broader uh, either intelligence or other kind of st- strategic thinking going on here. Yeah, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps exists in parallel to the Iranian military itself, and uh, there's an element inside the Revolutionary Guard Corps called the Quds Force. And that's sort of uh, people who really specialize in in this kind of irregular warfare right. kind of operations and whatnot, and and they have been the ones that have trained and supported uh, Hezbollah, uh, which are fellow uh, Shiites in southern Lebanon, uh, a huge, very capable uh, military force essentially at this point, as well as supporting Hamas for for many many years. Uh, it, it looks to me like. Uh, the Quds Force probably had a hand in not only supplying the weaponry, but also in planning this whole operation. And we've heard on the news uh, discussions about this being a complete intelligence failure. Right. Well, I can tell you as a career intelligence officer, uh, yes, that (laughs) that is what it was. But the problem is, if you're looking for indicators that have always been there in the past, and you're not seeing any things that uh, cause you great concern— uh, maybe you're not quite as concerned about things. And what I would tell you is that Hamas, probably with the support of the Quds Force, uh, finally learned how to practice OPSEC, real right. operational security, right. in their planning and preparations for this offensive that they carried out. Uh, now, that isn't to say that uh, there wasn't warning given to the Israelis by the Egyptians and promptly ignored, I think partly because of things that you were just talking about a little while ago, uh, the conundrum of domestic politics and Israeli uh, challenges to, you know, the, the current government under Netanyahu from the average citizens saying we do not want this uh, change to the Supreme Court and all the other things that have been happening inside uh, Israeli society. Uh, so how does Mossad and Shin Bet miss this? Well, there's a lot of things going on right. politically inside the country, and uh, they weren't seeing any of the normal indicators that would have uh, told them, hey, Hamas is getting ready to start something. Yeah, they may have been strategically laying low in an attempt yeah. to, to divert attention. And yeah. with the, uh, with what the goings-on sort of in the West Bank uh, occupying more attention, that might have been yeah. the case. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Greg Marfleet from Carleton College, and we're discussing the current situation in the Middle East. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, uh, Greg, let's talk just briefly a little bit more about uh, Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad, two other terrorist groups that are constantly threatening Israel. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think this episode and the sort of the origins of Hezbollah are something we can maybe connect conceptually, yeah. right? So, you know, as I noted, the the motivation of Hamas here is to provoke a response, right, which will radicalize the population. So we could turn the clock back to the 1980s. You and I were old enough to remember the 1980s. Like we were both in our teens, I think, yeah, watching the yeah, news. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, late 1970s, of course, Lebanon entered a period of civil war. Um, the PLO was increasingly active in southern Lebanon. Uh, and in 1982, um, the Israelis essentially invaded southern Lebanon in an attempt to eradicate the PLO and eliminate them from the region. 
Uh, they had been launching attacks in the Golan and into into Israeli territory, and this you know ended up uh, working. They managed to eliminate the PLO, but uh, at least in that region, um, but at a huge cost. And the cost was humanitarian. There were there was certainly reports of of uh, massacres. Uh, uh, the destruction of entire towns by Israeli uh, bombing. Uh, Israel shelled Beirut for months on end. Uh, and the, so the civilian deaths were, were pretty large. And there's an argument that while, and this is, kind of relates to, there's an article today uh, by uh, Stephen Walt in, in FP Magazine. That, and the title of it is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. He, he's and, at Harvard, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, he... Uh, um, the title of it is, you know, Israel may win the battle but lose the war. And I think that what has what happened in some ways in 1982. In 1982, they managed to eliminate the PLO, but they also, and the, and the I think the Lebanese were happy to see the PLO gone from the southern region, but it also radicalized a lot of the, of the Lebanese population and opened up the door for the creation of Hezbollah as a political entity. That, that was partly, I think, uh, because of the occupation in Lebanon by Israeli defense forces. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and, and, then was, and then the Israelis eventually withdrew, although they never actually fully left Lebanese territory for quite a while afterwards, till, till the mid-2000s. But they withdrew, and that sort of created a vacuum. The civil war had created a vacuum, and it just opened the door for Syrian occupation. So, yeah. so after that, in 1982, while the Israelis sort of won by eliminating the big threat, they actually sort of created the conditions for two new threats, right? Uh, Syrian activity as well as the emergence of Hezbollah. So Hezbollah has taken on a a quasi-state role in areas of Lebanon where the Lebanese state has failed. Uh, And the Lebanese state has failed largely because of Syrian meddling in many instances. And so so it's a little bit like Hamas in the sense that it's both a it's a political entity it's a it's it's kind of like a political party in some ways uh, but it's also um a govern governing agency so it supplies yep. um health care and social services and right. judicial kind of services to in the in the sort of the absence of any state apparatus to the people in southern lebanon uh and lebanon more broadly now uh and uh, and that all got its start really as a result of this. So you know, you think about the Hezbollah as an entity, uh, who knows what their actions are likely to be in this instance? Are they just right. going to lay low and wait and see what the Israelis are going to do? Is this an opportunity for more? Do, are we going to see activity on the northern border uh, of Israel uh, if Hezbollah decides to get involved? But I think there's sort of parallels between kind of these events. And I think the danger presented to Israel in this current event is, is how um, – how do they proportionally respond? And it's almost impossible to proportionally respond, as you and I were kind of just talking about earlier, right? Yeah. It's it's undoubted that the, if they send what there's talk of three hundred thousand reservists called up, three hundred sixty thousand, yeah. three 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 hundred thousand six three hundred sixty thousand, yes, that were called up. So we're gonna if they're gonna push three hundred thousand troops into the space of the Gaza Strip, which is, I think you were saying, what, 100 114 square miles. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of force. And when the U.S. Uh, launched the operations to take down Saddam Hussein in Iraq in 2003, it was a little over a hundred thousand troops to right. take down Iraq. Right. That's yeah. about the size of California. So we're talking just an overwhelming force. Yeah. And that's uh, it's going to be, you know. Uh, the potential for hum- for civilian casualties is enormous. If this turns into street fighting, you know that that's terrible. The all our alternative is to destroy buildings with people in them, right? And to, and if that's the, if that's what they're doing, then we're going to end up with an even more radicalized Palestinian population. Yeah. This could be the beginning of a long potential conflict, guerrilla conflict. You know, and, so. and the actions uh, that the Israelis are getting ready to take uh, as they carry out this offensive are going to have uh, much wider uh, ramifications with the relations with the Arab nations. And, Absolutely. and we'll get into that. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we were supposed to have uh, Mr. Fahad Nazar, the spokesperson for the Royal Saudi Embassy in Washington, D.C., on with us this morning. But you know, it was my intent to ask him the next question that I'm going to ask you instead. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the Saudi Foreign Ministry has curtailed a lot of uh, press engagement, and for obvious reasons, right? And we understand that. So I'm going to ask you this question now. For, for some time, the Biden administration is working to broker 
a more permanent uh, peace agreement between Israel and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has positioned himself really as kind of a deal maker in the region uh, throughout the Middle East. And if this agreement uh, ever reaches fruition, uh, he may actually succeed in doing more for permanent peace in the Middle East than, than perhaps any other leader has achieved to date. Uh, if, is- if Saudi Arabia says, yes, we will make peace with the Israelis, a lot of other Arab nations can probably follow suit. Right. Uh, right. Egypt right. did it, uh, yep. and now if Saudi Arabia does it, that's, yep. a, that's a big deal. So first of all, what, what do you make of this proposed peace deal? And where does it stand now as Israeli forces uh, are, are prepared to carry out a, what will be a concerted, protracted offensive in the Gaza Strip? Yeah. So uh, the peace deal, it's all part and parcel of, I think, big geostrategic things that are happening in the Middle East. And um, it's clear, it's interesting that the, both the Saudis and the Israelis see two big challenges. And those challenges are Iran yep. and Sunni extremism. Uh, both of these things are concerns for the Saudi government and the Israeli government. So sort of the enemy the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of argument going on here. The same thinking that Iran has used when they are arming up uh, Hamas. Right, right, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. There, there's no sort of religious connection there. They just see them as a potential tool. Yeah. I think that's really what's happening here. The rise of Iran, the the the, the, the efforts of the Iranian government through Hezbollah, through uh, similar kinds of entities in Yemen and other things have have sort of the Saudis are really worried about that geostrategic rivalry, and of course the Israelis have been worried about Iran, particularly their nuclear aspirations for quite a while. So they have a shared animosity towards Iran and its act- activities to foment um, fundamentalist Sunni or Shia activity in certain regions, right? And um, so I think that's part of the reason why that there that this is proceeding um of course the the uh the peace talks got their start with jared kushner and the trump administration and the abraham accords right mm-hmm. so uh, this was an attempt to sort of bridge that and this might be the outgrowth of that what it means and why now in terms of the attack is it's a signal to the palestinians that while they were for a long time uh the, during during the occupation, they they have always maintained the support of the Arab community. Right, the Arab Islamic community has always sort of held had the backs of the Palestinians and said, "Yes, we will not negotiate with Israel." You know, we see the we see it as a um, illegal a- entity. You know, they they it's they for long sort of been um, in solidarity with the Palestinians. This. If the if Saudis negotiate to recognize and accept Israel and even ally with it, suggests an end to that relationship with Arab, uh, the Arab world, uh, yeah. that they're no longer going to be seen as the um, uh, as the uh, the um, cause, a major cause in in Middle East politics any longer, and and that the world geopolitically has, has forgotten them, and I think that may be another reason for. The, the the felt necessity of an attack like this, these kind of actions, is that they're about to be pushed off the side of history. They're they're going to be forgotten. They already feel pretty forgotten, I imagine, right? And and say says things like that pretty regularly about the world and and the UN and how everybody's forgotten the plight of the Palestinians. And now even their Arab friends that have been loyal to them for you know sixty years or whatever it is are now about to forget them. That's uh, that's kind of the big picture thing I think that. Yeah, I think the one thing that we don't know, because it hasn't really been, as, as far as I know, uh, publicized, are, are what are the uh, the tenets of that deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia? I've heard snippets here and yeah, there. Yeah. Part of it was that uh, the Saudis would establish a diplomatic presence in the West Bank and maybe Gaza as well. Uh, where, do, where does the two-state solution end up at that point then? I mean, that's something Netanyahu has really refused to negotiate on yeah. uh, the entire time he's been prime minister. Yeah. And yeah. I can't see the, the the government in Israel today uh, even f- contemplating a two-state solution. Yeah. Uh, but you and I both know, having you know studied these topics, that uh, the complexity of this issue, you have to give some sort of meaningful 
uh, viable end state for the Palestinians, right? Or you will never end this cycle of violence. Yeah, absolutely. And there, so. I mean, the Palestine the, the Palestinian Authority has declared itself as a state, and it's yeah. got has been recognized as such in observer status by the UN. So, yeah. is there a de facto two state solution kind of at war? Yes, except the Israeli government has, and and as you're noting, kind of the West Bank is really under Israeli military control, right? Yeah. Um, they haven't really. They don't really have all of the uh, no. independent capacity of a state, yeah. and so now whether we could move in that direction, right, with sort of recognition, and the, uh, if a peace process results in some stability, and the Saudis, I mean, the Saudis, have, if nothing else, have lots of money. Yes, they do. And and uh, and money can solve a lot of problems in the Middle East, as we noted when you know we the the nineteen seventy three you know the Camp David Accords, we got the uh, Egyptians to back back off and. And essentially sign a peace treaty with the Israelis. They're, you know, uh, lifelong enemies, right? Um, yeah. uh, how did how did that happen? Well, we we throw billions of dollars in aid at both of those countries and solve the problem. So maybe you know, if we move forward with a with an uh, a Saudi Israeli peace agreement, the Saudis say, oh yes, and we'll supply billions of dollars in aid to the Palestinian, you know, territories, the Palestinian Authority or Hamas or maybe you know Hamas is in that regard is uh, an entity that you really shouldn't be supporting right no. this is one of those issues that um, a lot of European countries withdrew support for the Palestinian Authority after Hamas won in the 2006 event because they were deemed as a ter- terrorist a- actor right. so this is going to be how do you thread that needle I don't know but you know maybe the solution is the Saudis throw a lot of money at development and yeah. we get more peaceful activity yeah. you know and the, the sort of the the shape of the peace deal I mean, the U.S. is in the background on this too, right? So uh, part of it is how the how the potential for a peace deal between the Saudis and the Israelis can be sweetened by the U.S. And I think the Saudis primarily primarily want access to U.S. weaponry and technology, oh, yes. right? And so that may be the way we get that. And they're, of course, concerned primarily because of the threat of Iran. So Iran, shadow of Iran, comes back again. Yeah, that's true. the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, before we take a, just a quick uh, commercial break to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit, uh, for our listeners, there's two movies I would recommend. One is called uh, Endgame. came out uh, early 2000s, and it's actually really pertinent to what we're talking about right now, Greg. Uh, it's actually about the end of apartheid in South Africa. Mm. And it talks about the strategies that the African National Congress, the ANC, used to put pressure on, external pressure, on uh, the white apartheid uh, South African government to get them to finally agree to end uh, apartheid rule. And at the end of that movie, it talks about the fact that the Palestinian Authority had started consulting with the ANC about how to make headway in the situation with Israel. Uh, And... And part of that, I think, is what has come come from that is is the BDS movement. Right, right. I want to ask you about the BDS movement as soon as we get back from our uh, commercial break. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at National Security this week. Our guest today is Professor Greg Marfleet from Carleton College. Uh, Greg, before the break, I, I mentioned uh, the BDS movement, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Israel. Uh, foundations in the movement that the ANC used, African National Congress used, to uh, to bring an end to the apartheid white government in South Africa. Okay. Uh, wh- what's your take on the BDS movement? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a—the uh, <laughs> the apartheid connection is an interesting one, of course, right? Jimmy Carter got a lot of grief for a book that he wrote basically showing that, saying that, you know, uh, Israel— uh, was was moving towards he didn't claim it as they are already moving towards an apartheid regime and and some of those you know anti marriage uh, laws that I've talked about that the Israelis have have simply passed it really are almost entirely parallel with the movements that the the apartheid government in South Africa was doing so are they moving closer to this, this is an interesting question the challenge really for the and the reason why I think BDS has emerged is that if you look at it's funny we're in an era 
in American foreign policy where we have a highly polarized political system and they can't agree on much. Right. They can't even agree on the Ukraine right now. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing they absolutely agree on is support for Israel. Yeah. So there's almost there's no daylight between the political parties on this. And so if you're if you're uh interested in you know, the emancipation of the Palestinian people, you know, in some ways uh, from, from uh, occupation. Uh, you want to change the situation in the Middle East. How do you do it? You can't serve. There's no, there's no avenue in American government to American politics to do that. So um, it leaves this as sort of a grassroots activity. Can we, can we find ways to put pressure on the Israeli government um, that, uh, that we could do without essentially the agreement of the American, you know, leadership? And BDS movements are a way to try to articulate that, you know, uh, to get institutions, whether they're colleges in particular, which have been uh, subject to a lot of this discussion and have investment. And, um, you know, it's a little bit like the climate change stuff, right? So, so we, can, we yeah. can put pressure on institutions to follow along uh, and advance policy goals that political leaders aren't going to do for whatever reason. I, that's what we're seeing here. I'm not sure... Uh, it's having much success. I mean, yeah. the Israeli uh, uh, economy has been doing relatively well. Yeah. You know, foreign foreign investment in Israel is really high. Technological development in the Tel Aviv area. There's got a little, you know, Silicon Valley going out there yeah. right now. Yeah. So, you know, they're you know, I, I, it's hard to say that they're having any kind of effect in large part because they haven't been joined by state actors, right? right? So when the apartheid thing came up, there was a lot of pressure on state actors to to join in in a in a, in a regime, a sanctions regime. Well, part of the, the the difference here, the main difference is that the ANC, the African National Congress, actually officially renounced violence. They had mm-hmm. been a terror group, and they renounced violence, yeah. uh, and then pursued a political solution. Right, uh, and they put a lot of economic pressure on the South African government by getting the support of nations all around the world, including the United States. Now, right. Hamas, yes, has not done that. No, <laughs> in fact, uh, the BDS movement was really kind of founded on the principles of what the ANC did, right. but they have not renounced violence, and they and 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 uh, the Hamas has not, uh, and the BDS movement really still in in the underlying uh, theme there yeah. is Israel needs to go. Right. Well, that's just not realistic, right? Right. And but, until they make that round that corner, that that will never have a, a meaningful effect. Yeah. Let, let me uh, pivot over to some broader Middle East uh, challenge mm-hmm. issues. I think we should talk about that, and then I and then in our fourth segment, I want to talk about where the U.S. sits on this. Yeah. Now, if you're the if you're King Abdullah II, ruling the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, <laughs> what are you thinking about right now? Especially because West Bank is former is really kind of Jordanian territory that was taken right. uh, in the sixty seven war. But especially since you host uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, Palestinian refugee populations in the world. So what are you thinking about if you're King Abdullah II? Uh, internal security, yeah. I think, would be one of the first things, right? I mean, the, the potential for spillover here is is a possibility. The potential for um, uh, copycat kinds of activities or, or sympathetic activities by groups within the, in Jordan is a possibility. Jordan has spent a lot of time and effort uh, on internal security for that reason. Yeah. Uh, and I think so that's their their number one concern, I think, would be we want to make sure that none of the groups that are in our country use our, our country as a base for anything or uh, use it as a way to sort of uh, uh, infiltrate into the West Bank because there's, there's a porosity there uh, because of the sort of long-term, longer-term Jordanian contact that might make make it a, a venue for uh, activity in the West Bank to 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 spring up as well. So I think that's the number one concern. Jordan also has a longer-standing peace agreement with Israel, uh, and a number of agreements to you know regarding the Jordan River and a whole bunch of other things like that: environmental agreements, political agreements, uh, tourism, and other kinds of activity agreements. So um, they don't want to jeopardize their relationship with Israel in any way. Yeah. I think um, economically, it's been good for them. Uh, they've had the benefits of a fairly peaceful relationship for a while. Uh, I don't think they want to see that jeopardized in any way. So I think that would probably be the number one concern of the Jordanian government. Yeah, and, and I can tell you and our, our listeners that uh, the, the, the vast majority of Americans have no idea how how good of a friend the United States has in King Abdullah II. Right, yeah. He, yeah. He's an extraordinary human being and a, an incredible ally uh, for the U.S. and interests in the, in the Middle East. Yeah. You hit on one of the critical topics there, uh, the Jordan River, yeah. uh, water, water yeah. access to water in the desert. Uh, now we know that uh, the Israeli government just cut off all water supplies to Gaza as part of the punishment here ahead of the uh, launch of this operation. 
water is everything in the desert. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as we as we move forward with this crisis as it hopefully doesn't expand? Right. But if That's, it does. Again, it's been one of those longstanding uh, um, areas of cont- contention between, particularly in the West Bank. So the Gaza area is so dense and highly packed that it's not an area where a lot of agricultural activity is going on. It's like someone is likened it to an open air prison, right? It's blockaded. It's uh, economically, it's not doing much. Yeah. Uh, and uh, most of the economic activity is coming from aid. The West Bank, though, has uh, an economy. Uh, it's largely built on simple agrarian practices. Uh, and the Palestinians who live in those regions are farmers and herders and stuff like that. There, the tensions over access to water in the West Bank with the settler communities and uh, the displacement of Palestinians from, from traditional lands has been a long time problem. And so questions about like water access uh, with the Palestinian Authority have been going on for a long time. That's one of those things that I think is endemic to that region. Uh, and I, you know, presumably any kind of longer lasting peace is going to have to come to agreement on a bunch of these kinds of resources. But yeah. that's a, that's a big longer term question, I think. And, and, and if we look out a little bit bigger, sort of the four main power players in the region, Saudi Arabia, yeah. Egypt, Turkey under Erdogan, yeah. and then Iran. Now, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, and Turkey are all Sunni Muslim yeah. nations, yeah. and then Iran is sort of self-appointed leader of the Shiites, uh, that sect of, of Islam. Uh, all four of those countries are sort of constantly jockeying for influence across the Middle East region. Uh, is- Israel and Turkey sort of broke off relations a while back. They've since mended those ties. Uh, but nobody really wants to be close friends with Iran. <laughs> How much of the things that we are seeing happening around the region are uh, due to this competition between those countries and, and the proxy fights that they are supporting? Yeah, I mean, uh, we don't want to go down the Syria rabbit hole much, but I think if you wanted to to look at the effects of uh, regional great power politics at play, uh, Syria is a good example of that yeah. right and torn apart torn apart yeah, yeah. and uh um i think the you know the jordanians would certainly not want to entertain any of that sort of thing <laughs> happening they don't, no. they're gonna again as an ally of the united states their internal security as well as maintaining control over their uh, uh territorial and not not getting involved in this stuff i think the question would be can any of those actors particularly on the sunni side the turks the saudis can they um act as um, mediators in this event, right? The Saudis have come out and uh, uh, not in support of Hamas, but have come out in in, in uh, hoping, uh, sort of uh, asking, sort of. I don't know what to try to say. They're try, they're they've um, counseled restraint, mm-hmm. right? So they didn't they didn't cast any blame on anybody. This, these are terrible, but we were hoping that the Israeli response is restrained. So they didn't really come out immediately and condemn Hamas. They've put themselves in a position where they might be able to serve as uh, potential interlocutors, especially in the context of a peace agreement. So I think the Saudis have the better potential there. Uh, the Turks also have an interest, I think, in the whole the whole region and, and its issues. But the Saudis, I think, are closer to it in terms of the potential for serving as a, as a negotiation actor. Yeah, I mean, Egypt, uh, part of the part of Gaza, the southwest uh, uh, line of Gaza, uh, borders up against Egypt and Sinai. Yeah. Uh, but I think Egypt has big problems right now just trying to keep track of what's happening with the civil war in Sudan, especially since Khartoum is where the Blue Nile and White Nile come together, and everything that exists in, in Egypt today exists because of the Nile River. Right. Uh, they cannot have anything happen to their so- so- source of fresh water. Uh, so I'm sure they're 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 pretty focused on what's happening in Sudan, and I know that Saudi Arabia has tried to uh, serve as an interlocutor between both sides in the civil war in Sudan as well. So right. the foreign ministry in Saudi Arabia is very busy right now. Right, it's a the the story of sort of the rise of Saudi Arabia as an important figure in the Middle East is is an interesting one. That's yeah. something in the last decade or so. Um, they've risen away from sort of just this oil rich Bedouin kingdom to merge as more of a of a regional and even global power player. Yeah. Well, they're about to join the BRICS. Yeah. Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa right, as right. this uh, sort of economic entity that uh, yep. covers an awful lot of the, the global uh, economy. Right. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Greg Marfleet from the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Carleton College, and we're discussing the current situation in the Middle East. 
We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Professor Marfa, we've been talking about the Middle East situation, the Middle East specifically, what's been happening uh, in Israel, uh, the tragedy, the real tragedy of bloodshed that's happening uh, around the region. We didn't really even talk about what's happening in Yemen uh, or what's still going on really kind of in Iraq and Syria. It's still fighting and a lot of fighting happening in Syria. But let's shift this back to Washington, D.C., because part of the show is we always want to know why does it matter to the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what does the strife across, you know, really not just the Middle East, but but other regions around the world indicate for American national security interests in the world today? Yeah, I think we have a, I mean, there's a, a number of articles, ideas floating around in the blogosphere and other places about the sort of the end of the Pax Americana. Uh, the peace the, dividend the from peace, the Cold War. Yeah, peace dividend from the Cold War. Um um, you know, we, if you, it's, it's an incredible the degree to which whatever consensus there used to be around foreign policy across the political parties has started to fray so strongly. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tommy Tuberville's blocking promotion of all these, you know, they wanted to cut, uh, Lloyd Austin's salary to a dollar. I mean, it's just a whole series of related to the military and related to foreign policy. We, we haven't been able to get, uh, a, a U.S. ambassador to Israel confirmed yet. Yeah. That's been in the hold. It's, it's crazy, you know, in some ways, the degree to which we can't find any kind of agreement. And right now, you know, especially with the chaos in um, in, the, in the Congress, but also the, you know, the transition between the Trump administration and some of the attitudes towards NATO that were expressed, a lot of the kind of core underpinnings of what constituted American foreign policy after the end of the Cold War, the sort of the liberal order. The, the alliance of democracies, you know, the global war on terror shaped our foreign policy for a while, but that sort of uh, has receded a little bit. And so I think we've been with a little bit without a major um, foreign policy, you know, motivating animus in that regard. And um, and I think we're we've been at a stage where you know, America is uh, there's some questions, I think, about America's commitment globally to. Uh, maintaining the liberal order, maintaining global peace and things like that. So uh, there, there's, no, would, a, there's yeah. an element of our political uh, establishment that's sort of isolationist in nature. Yeah, yeah. And we're facing that again, again, just like we did before World War One, before World War Two. And I think that's fundamentally a bad thing for yeah. the world. You know, I, I'm, I guess I'm an internationalist. I study international politics, <laughs> so I should be understood to be kind of in that camp, right? But, uh, yeah, I've, I've always been a, a believer that sort of the American president, presidents in the world is a good thing. Uh, yeah. Not uh, not an un, unalloyed good. It's you know occasionally there's some things that people can be critical about and rightly so. But for the most part, the American presence globally has been for the good. It's you know more peace, more prosperity, um, and uh, the so the, the the impetus to withdraw. And I'm not sure like we can necessarily ascribe what happened in the Ukraine or what happened just recently in Armenia, right? Mm-hmm. I mean or what's going on in the Middle East and, 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 and places to, to like a weaker global America. It's not really a direct causal thing, but you got to wonder the degree to which whether America's um, uh, kind of looking inward, turning inward, and just lack of any cohesion in its, in the, in its global messaging yeah. is, is a sort of opened opportunity for, for some of this stuff to occur. Yeah, you mentioned a uh, lack of a uh, of a unifying threat to America. I think it was Samuel Huntington talked about the fact that uh, mm-hmm. the United States works really well yeah. when we have an existential threat <laughs> uh, from outside our country. Throughout yeah. the entire Cold War, that was the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, we really didn't have an existential threat, and it was this Pax Americana right. uh, time frame that you talked about. Now, I, I would suggest to you that, uh, from my own perspective, having been out there on the pointy edge, uh, uh, you know, pointy, pointy, the tip of the spear uh, a, a, as a member of the, the U.S. Navy, uh, we were sent all over the world to deal with crisis after crisis after crisis. Right. I don't know if our political leadership really thought long and hard about whether or not it was in our long-term national security interest to be involved in so many places all at once. But there was certainly a significant expenditure of resources. Right. Uh, a cost to to, to do those things. Yeah. So I think you know there's a debate. There should be a healthy debate about you know does the U.S. get involved here or there? What to what extent? Uh, but it's certainly borne out by history. And we go all the way back to the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> the benefits of having a strong alliance cannot be under underestimated. Right. 
Yeah. And so uh, the NATO alliance has been a force for good. The move towards a liberal democratic order uh, really you know, changed the world fundamentally throughout the course of the Cold War. I would say maybe the first 15 years of the post-Cold War period, it really was true. But we've seen a reversion against little d democracy yeah. in places where it had really started to take root uh, all over the world. Look at the number of coups that have happened in Africa. Look at the situation in Venezuela and parts of Central America. Uh, look at uh, Myanmar. Look at uh, what just happened in uh, Azerbaijan uh, with Nagorno-Karabakh. There are all the look at what's still happening every single day. The slaughters that are taking place in Ukraine by Russian troops. Right. I mean, right. the, the the world is not getting safer. That's my sense, you know. But you know, there's a debate actually in political science circles right now about like democratic backsliding. Yeah. You know, I think if we look at Erdogan, we look at uh, uh, um, Hungary, uh, yeah, Orban, 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 Viktor Orban. Yeah. I just yeah. blanked on his name for yeah. a second. Yeah. Poland and Italy, exactly. Yeah. These sort of populist movements that are sort of anti-democratic in their orientation. Israel. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people concerned right now about Israeli democracy. Right. And I and I. I'm, and you know what the potential for that is, and I've you know the, one of the sort of long-standing sayings is that like, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, right? And so you know we got to defend that one democracy in the Middle East, which is increasingly looking less de- less democratic all the time. And and you know I, there's clearly these a, a, a large a number of Israelis uh, and Jews around the world that don't want to see that happen, right? And so uh, there's been protests and stuff like that. But I think the question about have, are we are we in a in a sort of a dark darker days for democracy here? That's an open question, one that's still going on. But it does seem to be that we've got more violence occurring in more places. It's but I think empirically we'd have to take a look and see whether that you know is true. Whether it's just yeah. we perceive it and understand it more. Right. We see more of it. Social media puts it out there more. We get we get more information about it than we used to. Maybe some of this stuff was happening in the dark before we never really saw it. So I it's. It's an interesting question, and I and I don't want to be too much of a pessimist in that regard, you know. Uh, but it does it it is um, some cause for concern, I think, about the, sort of the nature of the world order and the erosion of some of the principles that are uh, involved here, uh, particularly when it comes to humanitarian principles, principles of democracy, the kind of things that should be the bedrock of American foreign policy. So. Yeah. It's a it's it's a it's a huge conundrum that we face right now at this pivotal time. I often wonder to myself what uh, people were thinking who were in who were adults in leadership positions in the United States uh, in, in 1937, 38, yeah. 39 time frame as they were watching things happen in Europe and uh, in the Paci- in the Pacific as well. Yeah, uh, very disconcerting. Uh, frankly. Right, right. Yeah. Clouds on the horizon. Yeah. You know. Uh, so who wins with all this strife that's uh, that's happening around the world? I mean, is there a, is there a, is there a nation out there that is benefiting from uh, all this turbulence? China. <laughs> I, 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 I thought we might get around to that. I'm kind of curious. I mean, I didn't even look to see what was. Do you know what China's response is to? Uh, I, I haven't seen them make an official, official statement. I, I know the Russians yeah. said that they always uh, counsel restraint. That was the official statement right. from the Russian foreign right. ministry, right. which I think everybody realized. There is some joke. argument that uh, maybe they are secretly in the side of Hamas because apparently some Hamas leadership people were visiting with the uh, Russian foreign minister only weeks before this event. So, but those conversations happen all the time. So it's not necessarily yeah. that indicative, but yeah. yeah, I haven't seen a, a major kind of China statement on this. Yeah. Uh, and I think you know China can just lay low and let the you know let let the U.S. handle some of this to some degree yeah. and get involved in the quagmire uh, while they go about their business. They have their their own concerns right now, yeah. though. There's a lot of discussion about. China's slowing economy and some of the leadership deficit that's going on. And there's been sort of quiet purges in the, in the communist party, Chinese communist party. And, uh, you know, where are they leadership wise? This big questions there too, you know, and and instability in China would be a bad thing too. That's right. So uh, the the demographic, uh, the demographic shifts uh, that that China is facing right now because of the one child policy are going to start hitting pretty soon as, as well. So, oh, uh, look, looks like we do have some some basic statements out of uh, the China's China's foreign ministry. Calling all relevant parties to remain calm, exercise restraint, and yeah. immediately end the hostilities to protect civilians, and afford, avoid further deterioration of the situation. Yeah, uh, that's that's about as vanilla as you can get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So, Greg, we're, we're closing in on the end of the show. We have about uh, f- you know, five minutes left or so. I, as you know, having been a, a guest on the show a, a couple of times previously, I try to give my guests the last word. Oh. Uh, what else would you like to tell our listeners uh, about the situation in the Middle East or your thoughts on the challenges uh, America faces in this kind of changing world that we live in right now uh, with you know backsliding of democracy, maybe, but certainly a lot of strife uh, that's happening again uh, all over the place. Uh, the, the floor is yours. And I may have a follow-up question or two, depending upon what you decide to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I, where, where to go with that big, broad question? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the question of uh, the rise of uh, decline of democracy or the rise of illiberal democracy yeah. is one of the big, the big questions. Uh, you know how uh in 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 some ways um the situation in Israel is a microcosm of places we see it's probably a more extreme version of it in some ways where um question of the respect for minority groups in inside a democracy is something that's you know problematic whether that's um whether that's uh, uh Palestinians in uh, Palestinian uh Israelis in in Israel or whether that's you know um immigrants into the United States, you know, undocumented immigrants to the United States, how we treat the people who are kind of at the margins, right, yeah. is um, I think that's something that's troubling uh, globally right now, whether it's the treatment of refugees, whether it's the treatment of migrants, like, you know, that Europe's having its own migration problem from Africa, mm-hmm. how we go about handling these challenges um, as democracies and the and the way that we perceive the challenges and respond to them and how that shapes um, how we go about our, our activities in the world, right? There's, there's um, I think the, the, the character question is presented to us. Right? Are we going to respond to these kinds of challenges the right way, the humanitarian way, or, or are we going to devolve into scapegoating? Are we going to use these people as political pawns to, to advance policies that, uh, to, to 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 drum up fear, to create resentments, and to sort of advance policies that are maybe counter democratic. I think that's a, tr- a trend we see in a lot of places, and that's one that's kind of uh, part of this of this discussion right now. Um, something that concerns me a little bit as we go forward. Part of that. You, you mentioned the term illiberal yeah. democracies. Yeah. Uh, we, we had uh, Dr. Moises uh, Naim on the show uh, some time ago, uh-huh. uh, talking about one of his uh, more recent books. And what he talked about is this idea that uh, uh, populist uh, leaders, yeah. uh, they, they often echo kind of nationalist ideas and sentiments. They do scapegoat certain elements of either their internal society or neighboring nations as being the cause, uh, quote-unquote, for all of the problems that people face, you know, the real Americans, the right. real Italians, right. et cetera. And then when they win an election in a populist landslide, they tend to change the framework of the democratic system uh, to benefit them or their party to gain power and then permanently maintain power. We see that really with Viktor Orban right. in Hungary. Yep. Uh, it's a question mark of how long that lasts in Poland. Yep. Uh, we don't know what will happen in Italy. Usually Italy changes governments about every six months, but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, these are the challenges that we as Americans, who I think all believe in the value of having a democratic society, little d democratic, yep. Yep. Uh, and the republic that we live in, and we need to defend uh, democracy right, uh, right. globally. Uh, right. That's what we've done for most of the uh, the history of this country is to support fellow democracies and, and really post-World War II international security framework, the economic framework from Bretton Woods Agreement. Right. All of those things were things that we spearheaded as a nation, right. and they're all under threat right now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of hard to get the public worked up about process, though. Right, I know. You know, I that's know. the issue, right? So <laughs> it'd be like, what we really need to do is is defend democratic processes, democratic yeah. principles, yeah. not necessarily policy wins, right? Yeah. And um, and so you know, if you talk to either the progressive on the left or the conservatives on the right, neither of them are particularly attuned to that question, yeah. and, and they're more concerned with particular policy outcomes. I think. Maintaining a commitment just to democracy and principle. That's, yeah. a t- that's a, not that exciting a slogan. but And, and that really kind of brings us back to the uh, original topic that we started on today. Uh, you, you've heard rhetoric, both you and I have heard this on the TV from, you know, different elements that are out there that says, you know, 
attacking the Israelis for having put all this in motion, they got what they deserved, or attacking the Palestinians for what the Hamas did, which was absolutely horrific and unjustifiable. Right, right. The challenge that we face is how do we take a look at the facts of the situation and find a way through the horrific mess that we're in right now right. to have some sort of a meaningful, you know, justifiable end state that brings peace to everybody. Yeah. And that's that's the challenge that political leaders have. The, my dissertation was on crisis, and one right. of the things that I, I wrote about in there was the definition of what constitutes a crisis. And yeah. the, the ancient Greek understanding of a crisis wasn't necessarily what we think of it. It was like an inflection point, like a watershed where things could go in either direction, right? And I think we have a crisis, and it is could this could be one of those watershed events, but what direction it'll go, I guess, is to be seen. Yeah, and we'll have yeah. to leave it there. Yeah. Uh, We've come to the end of uh, this edition of National Security This Week. Professor Greg Marfleet, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for filling in on short notice. Uh, we really appreciate it. This is a this highly complex situation in the Middle East. Uh, there are some real long-term American national security interests at stake uh, based on how things play out here. Yep. So uh, hopefully our, our listeners learned from, from you this morning. I know I did. Uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It was great, great to be here. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Our guest will be Elizabeth Bra, and we'll be talking about uh, Sweden's application to NATO and what's holding that up. Uh, thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finished week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.